Hello there. I'm Paul Shirley. This is The Process Podcast, where I talk to experts about the habits, routines, and rituals that help them finish projects that are important to them. Today, I've got a guest that's close to my heart. His name's Andrew Bogut, and like me, he was a professional basketball player. There's one big difference, though. He was way better than I was. The number one pick in the NBA draft, in fact. Andrew and I are going to do something of a post-mortem on his basketball career. What did he learn about resilience, for example? When did basketball click? And what has he taken from his basketball career that he applies to his life now? We'll probably also talk like old people. But hey, we're both retired from an entire career. What do you expect? Here's me and Andrew Bogut on The Process Podcast. Hello. Hi. Thanks for doing this. How's it going? Good. We want to mention that you are now also, in addition to an ex-basketball player, a podcaster. Remind people, before we get into anything, what's the name of the podcast? It's Rogue Bogues. So, um, just a little play on, on nickname, everything like that. Um, so, at Rogue Bogues on all social media platforms and at Rogue Bogues on all kind of podcast platforms and we do a mix of things we do a weekly basketball show with Mike Procopio who was a, a long time NBA coach NBA workout guy NBA scout um, do that weekly and it's just kind of really raw that was the whole point of it we wanted to be raw there's a little bit of swearing in there which we get a little bit of crap for um, but we wanted to keep it real and not the fluff that as you know you were involved in pro sports that we see a lot and then um, I also do all my journey series which is just myself basically from start to finish my career is how it's going to play. Basically an autobiography by a podcast. I think it's the first of its kind for a athlete to do. So I want to do that before a book. Um, and then I also do a car a car chat series, which is only monthly with a good friend of mine just talking about you know muscle cars and classic cars, which is kind of a passion of mine. And it's been fun to get on there and just, um, just you know, end my thoughts, you know, uh, verbally, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, before we get into why we're here, which is to talk a lot about the habits and routines that you've built over the years that I would imagine you're using even in post-basketball days. I want to ask you three really important questions. First one is, would you rather die by drowning or in a fire? I think the drowning would be a good day. I'll take the drowning. Okay. So speaking of water, um, swimming or running? At this point in my life, swimming. Mm, I wondered. We could. Uh, we are not going to do this, but you and I could probably compare orthopedic injuries and uh, us uh, large humans. We're not really built that well for running, as it turns out. That'd be a long conversation if we did. But yeah, um, towards the end of my career, much harder to run. If people would have noticed, got much slower. But yeah, now as far as heart rate stuff, I try to do as much non-impact as I can to stay in shape. Okay, last question. How do you take your coffee? I mix it up, um, but generally I like a... A little bit of milk, so kind of a short latte in Australia. They call them, they call them piccolos, actually. So it's basically, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with them, but it's, uh, it's a shot of espresso and then it's just a small latte, essentially, like a mini latte. My second coffee, I have two coffees a day, one in the morning, one after lunch, and the one after lunch, you leave an iced coffee just because it's pretty warm. Did you drink coffee during your career? I did, yes. Okay. I only discovered it after I was done playing and I'm kind of confused as to what I was doing with my life. So you have more culture. Well, you are American. I know. It's, it's the American, the American coffee. 
Yeah, it's getting there. Um, you guys are getting there a little bit, but you're, you're about six steps behind Europe and Australia. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, let's dive into some some basketball talk. I want to know when did basketball click for you? Like, when was it that you felt like, uh oh, I'm I'm better at this than many people are at other things? Probably pretty late in my what would be American high school athletes is a little bit different. You know, we don't play in high school. We play for a club outside the school. Um, but I was kind of bounced around, cut, you know, not really wanted at 11, 12, 13, 14. And then 15 really put the effort in, the time and effort started to do a lot more away from team setting and just figuring all that out. And then um, when I knew I was had a chance to be professional, was it about it was 16, 17? Sign a letter in to go to the University of Utah, so I kind of knew, like, at minimum, I'm playing in Australia or a low-level Europe, mid-level Europe, and then for me, it all came together. Within 18 months, you know, two years, I went from being relatively unknown in 2003, going to a World Junior Championships, uh, MVP All-Star 5, winning a gold medal for Australia, which was the first of its kind, um, the 2003 August to 2005 in draft. So it, it went like really quick. It wasn't a, I wasn't one of these kids that was highly touted. I wasn't well known. Um, and it just all came together. You know, it was almost so, so fast. You didn't even have time to enjoy it because we were just going from one thing to the other. Mm-hmm. What I'm going to dive in a little bit to, to feelings here. Um, I, I think a lot about how valuable it is when you find a, state of flow or, or where you're truly connected and and you feel just different and almost superhuman. Do you remember that occurring to you or that, that sense of feeling different on the court or working out on your own at a certain age? Yeah, no, I mean, when it came as a young fellow, you you don't really even think about that for me, like that state of flow. I thought about it more towards the end of my career when the game becomes much more mental, Um, probably overanalyze things and overthink things. Um, as a young fellow, you just go out there and play. You don't, you don't think about anything else. So the best state of flow to me is that one where you're not thinking about state of flow, if that makes sense, where you're not thinking about um, the mental side of the game. It's just natural. You go out there, you play hard, you try to win and try to play well. And that was, for me, that was, uh, you know, college, definitely my sophomore year, my second year, and then probably the first five or the first five, Years, six years in the NBA, I was in that state. Um, Entrepreneurs started and different things started um, occurring in my life on and off the court. That's when it became a bit more of a, uh, a grind to get to that mental state. Mm-hmm. You mentioned um, that there was a point where you started working more on your own. What was it that that tipped you over? Like, was there uh, like I, I went through many things in in my career of uh, either people saying I couldn't do it, or just or potentially being pulled by the positive and and loving the feeling of being on the court. Do you remember a a sense of like I am now motivated to go do this on my own, and when that would have happened? Well, I think I was always motivated. I loved the game so much from a really young age. Um, I fell in love with the game at you know eight or nine years old. And um, but you don't know the avenue or the forums or the route you need to take to be really good. But it was a matter of there was someone that invited me to a basketball game or a basketball training session. I'd go no matter what at all costs. I try to get to get to it. So I just loved playing. It wasn't about who it was with or if it was a big name coach or whatever. I just loved being around the game. So um, once I started to figure that out, um, I played for as many teams as I could. 
you know, at times I was playing five games a weekend, six games a weekend, you know. Um, so then on top of that, you got the training sessions for the team, but it still wasn't enough. So uh, I think it was at um, you know, under 18 level. Um, I was about 16, 17. I tried out for our state team, which is, I mean, similar to AAU and the US, or let's say our big championship, the state championship, so you represent the state um, at a junior level, under 16, under 18, under 20. And you represent your state and go and play against other states. And that's kind of where all the college scouts come and all that kind of stuff. So, going to that was important. I, I didn't make that team. I remember that 18, but I got selected as an emergency. So, that meant that if someone got injured, I'd get to go. So, I didn't really get to go. And no one's been injured. You know, everyone's going to try to play no matter what. And I remember my father, we had a game one day and there was a, my father's Croatia, my whole family's from Croatia. And there was a, um, Back the Balkans, half Croatian, half Serbian, he happened to be at one of my junior games and he sat next to my dad and, and said, you know, is that your son right there? You know, I was lanky, you know, skinny, wasn't growing into my body. He said, I can, I can make that guy a professional. My dad's like, okay, well, like, and we'd had, we paid numerous individual coaches along the journey and some of them were flaky, some of them just did it for money, um, not a whole lot of eventuate out of it. My dad said, well, put your money where your mouth is. And he's like, oh, I don't, I don't have time, I don't have time. So my dad's like, well, then, you know, shut up. Like, we thought it was for, kind of, leave me alone. And um, I guess they exchanged numbers. There was a bond there because, you know, the guy was half Croatian, half Serbian. And then that night we got a phone call from him. Um, basically told my father, you're on. I'll take, you know, start training his son. And it was relentless. So on top of all my club training, he would wait for me after school, school gate. Um, and he'd beat up car. And I'd jump in his car, go home, get changed, and go, go find a, a gym that was available straight after school and just work. And a lot of times we wouldn't... Um, it wouldn't be a four or six session or a four or seven. It'd be four until we got to stop the court, um, which I hated. But some days I'd be praying, like, <laughs> I hope someone booked the court out for indoor soccer or badminton or basketball or whatever. But, and that was Monday to Friday. And then on top of that, I had all the other commitments to school. So that's when my workload went from like wanting, you know, wanting to be great to really wanting to be great. What was it about that coach's methodology that? that clicked because we all had so many zillions of different coaches. And I can remember in my own past that there were certain people that it could have been the timing was right. It could have been that personality. What do you think it was about that particular person that helped? I was a mix of things. First off, you know, my father had to pay someone to do it. So it was very, very pricey. You know, we're a working class family. Um, and my dad was paying a fair bit of money to buy daily to, to train me. And, so his attention was just getting me better. There was no politics involved. He was paid for service and he wasn't a club coach that was friends with parents and, and I like this kid because I know his sister or whatever it was. It was none of that stuff. That was number one. It was someone that gave me the attention and time and effort that I you know, was in return for the love I had for the game. I finally had someone that was developed and there was obviously the Balkan connection, you know, similar ideals and I think just Somewhat, some days he knew when to beat me down and some days he knew when to pick me up and um, it was just a matter of I think even even the placebo effect of, of putting in more time than other people, even sometimes if it isn't that beneficial of what you're actually doing I strongly believe that the mental side of I've done more work than you plays a big part in your mind um, and obviously the work and the skill development is a big part as well but I, I later on in my career I started to realise that you know, if I'm putting in 10 hours and you're putting in two hours, I know eventually that we're going to meet on that curve and, and I'm going to pass you. 
and it, even just from a mental standpoint, it, it, it's better. So that's, that's exactly what it was. Let me tell you that this may seem like a strange question, but do you have brothers and sisters? I don't know what to think so, yeah. Okay. Uh, because one of the things I noticed about coaching, there was something really interesting about or, or special about that one-on-one relationship that gets built. I have, I have three younger brothers. And so there was, there was something also very cool about like, I'm getting this outside influence where this person cares specifically about me on my own. Um, did you ever get a sense of that? Like that there's something about when it's not a parent at well as well, that helps. Of course. Yeah. And, and that's where it's hard in team sport, but like a team coach is kind of the tough position because he has 10, 12 players that, that he needs to take care of. Um, and like I said, also can play a part, favorite human nature, it's just the way life is, right? But um, yeah, I just, like I said, it was finally someone that attended to my needs, um, addressed my weaknesses, addressed my strengths, and was point blank with it. There was no no need to be politically correct. There was no need to tell you kind of a nice way of that you stuck at this. It was like, you stuck at this, you need to get better at this, and we're going we're gonna to work on this daily. I think that's the realization that you can spend a day or two having those conversations, whether you like hearing them or not. But then it's like, okay, now the flip side, this is our plan of getting that better. And um, that, that's what really was important for me, even though at times you don't want to hear it as a young kid. You're like, I thought I was great. You know, but well, no, you can't go left. Or no, you're, you know, you're dependent on going by you and you close out and you do adjustments, whatever it was. And, and we used to just address a bunch of different things. And on top of that, it was about developing into my body. Like I was lanky, skinny, you know, at times uncoordinated. Like I was growing so fast that I'd, I'd build up my, my mobility and my footwork would get to a great level. And then I'd grow two or three inches and it'd be like, it all just fall apart for a couple of months and then I have to get it back. So we're just, just doing all that stuff daily. Really, really helpful. When you got to the U.S., there must have been things that struck you about the American developmental system. Uh, part of the reason I asked this is because when I played in Europe for a while, I noticed that there was so much difference between the way that European training happened and American training happened. So was there a sense of, I wish I had had X or was there a sense of, wow, I got a better education than many of these Americans or some combination thereof? Well, a combination of both. Well, the Americans were the best athletes and athletics basketball in the world um, something that's very hard to teach I think the rest of the world caught up with probably the passing um, America with skill development and technique because they had to that was their only way to try and compete if they try to go on athlete versus athlete you know most countries have no chance in the USA so the one thing I wanted to get over to the States was like I knew like I had a well had run dry for me here competition wise I, I Toward the end of my, my era here as a junior, I was the best player. So I thought, I need to go get my ass by someone else. Like, I can't, I don't want to be that guy kicking in my else's ass because that's what worked for me as a junior, um, young age. I was always bottom, middle of the bottom, aiming up to kick that guy's ass, right? So I was now that guy at the top. And I was like, I'm not going to get better having these guys kind of, kind of get to where I am. So I need someone above me. So that, that was the big plus positive for me going to the US was I need to get my ass kicked. But um, I went to Australia before the AIS. So that I'm familiar, they can Google it. Um, it's in Canberra. It's basically a national sporting body that was identified in the 80s. Australia had a horror run at the Olympics. The government said, you know, we need to fix this. And they gave scholarships out for numerous different sports. You moved there full time at 16, 16, 17, trained and basketball had a program. And they taught us basically everything from, you know, 
showing up on time, booking medical appointments, getting your physio in, getting your massage in, self-stretching, self-massage. Um, you know, as crazy as it is, we used to have team massage sessions where we'd have one masseuse that would walk around, 12 of us in the team, we'd all be, we'd partner up with the teammate and then the teammate would have to massage whatever I wanted, massage, but I'd have tight calves in my calves and then we'd switch 30 minutes. So even just stupid stuff like that, that at the time you thought was just crazy, like I'm rather oil on a teammate. But it taught you how to, you know, like if you do end up in Europe in a small league with, you know, no budget for physio, you can, you can get by and, and learn. And that's where I was way ahead of any other kid in college. Hot, cold, tubs, all that kind of stuff. No one was doing that when I got to the US. It was, so maybe 18 didn't even have cold tubs at that point. It was, it was bonkers, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I certainly noticed that when I was in Europe. There was an element of equipping the players to be resilient regardless of the surroundings. When it comes to post-basketball days, what have you taken from sports that you now use in the rest of your life, whether consciously or unconsciously? Because I think sometimes that stuff just kind of seeps in. You mentioned um, being taught to show up on time, right? So I've noticed about athletes that they're so much like military people in that you can always count on them to show up. Whereas it turns out that a lot of the rest of the world isn't necessarily like that. Oh, scheduling for me is very, very important. Um, and that's important. Having a daily schedule, having things planned out, you know, I, I still get frustrated with my wife sometimes if we, you know, we get caught in the crosshairs schedule wise, which is something that we already, or vice versa, right? And then it ends up a little bit, a little bit awkward and get into it a little bit, but that's just because, you know, unfortunately as an athlete, you have to be selfish. Um, you know, it's my physio, my recovery, my training session to, my team, my, my pre-game meal has to be at this time, has to be this soon for my coffee at this time and, you know, that's why I kind of set the conversation, but that's why I kind of plan on having things later in life because I knew that, um, you know, it was somewhat all about me and I had to be selfish to be successful. And, and yeah, I definitely agree that that was one thing that I learned was just being on time and being respectful of people. And, and just, I think for me, it was, you know, one thing I picked up from post sports was just treating everyone, you know, with respect, um, whether it was people that, cleaners with disabilities or just, just saying hello to people. That was something that always kind of bugged me about um, professional players was they generally most, not all, but most, the majority um, would take those people for granted, whereas I, I kind of understood those people more because I was from that kind of family where we were those people, you know, so um, that's where I really try to make an effort to interact with just everyday people that probably wouldn't get a hello from the player, you know. Yeah. And, and what's amazing about that, I find, is that that buys you time and grace if something goes wrong. Like if you treat the equipment manager or the trainer or whomever else well, and it's between you and one other guy that, that may be just as good as you, then they're going to pick you because they're like, that guy's just easy to be around. And I think people forget how important that is, not only in sports, but just like in the world. Like if you're easy to be around, people will just give you opportunities constantly, right? Yeah, I think so. But I mean, that wasn't why I was doing it. It was more just my soul, my point of view. It's just like, mm-hmm. Did you struggle with the end of basketball or were you ready for it to be over? Oh, I definitely struggled. Like, um, I think going from Golden, uh, Milwaukee to Golden State was a transition. Went from number one, number two options to five or six years. Everything was kind of built around, you know, my skill set to then being a fourth, fifth option on a great team. But I adapted to that pretty well because we're winning 
you know, um, we weren't winning and I was asked to do that, probably would have been a different story to the situation or a conversation you had with the GM, like get me out of here. But the fact that we were winning, I was happy in that environment. What really hit me was getting to Dallas and then we were we started I don't know, two and two and eight, two and seven, two and nine, whatever we were, and, and it was like, Okay, we're gonna you know we're gonna, we're gonna play you off the bench. And I'd never come off the bench in my career and that's when the realization set in, like I was pissed about it for a week or two. I was bitter about it, didn't handle it the best way I could have. But then after that came the realization, yeah, like, you know, 32 years old, a lot of injuries, you know, slowing down. Um, it is what it is. I need to kind of adapt to this. And no one can pay that your agent, your family, your parents, your coach, whoever it is, to not pay for, for those different journeys. And the roller coaster of the ride, and you kind of have to adapt the, the right way. No one handles it the right way. No one handles it the wrong way. Everyone handles it. With Whatever they've had in their upbringing, so that that was kind of an eye opener for me. And then, just recently, with, with COVID hitting after the NBL season here, I played um, 2019-2020. Was planned to get the, the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo. That was kind of my short, medium, long term plan. Retire after that, and then shit at the fan with COVID. So that season finishes in March. I'm like, okay, I'm going to take myself here. I'm going to work out the Olympics, and then they, that gets cancelled. And I was at night's edge on that, that final season in the NBL anyway, body-wise. Like, I was severely breaking down, struggling to get out of bed some days and not being able to play with the kids. So then that got cancelled and I'm like, I don't I don't have another year in me to play professionally to stay in shape for Olympics in 21. So it was somewhat a, it wasn't a forced retirement, but I just knew mentally I couldn't get for another year and, and unfortunately I couldn't hold on to what would have been my fourth Olympics. Do you now sometimes enjoy not being in pain? Because that's one thing that I for, I sort of forget to remind myself about. Like like you, my body started to fall apart when I was about 32, 33. And I, it was just every day was waking up thinking, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to get out of bed today. Um, and now I feel so much better. And it's, it's wonderful to be 43 years old and feel way better than I did when I was... 30 years old so is that has that already happened to you that you feel enough better that you're able to recognize that yeah it, it has but look to be honest i still need to work out because if i don't i mean my body gets even worse so i work out try to work out three or four times a week so not nothing crazy before work you know had back issues throughout my career so i still have to do stuff but in the realization for me like i said that last season in the nbl uh, i was putting in so much more time than i was getting out of, of basketball and it was getting there two, three hours before, you know, rubbing the heat creams on, stretching, getting 30 minutes of physio and then having to warm up and then you see the young fellas just roll out of their car and they're ready to go, you know, and that was hard. Um, but the realisation for me was going to the park with my kids when I was, you know, two or three years old at that time and like not being able to push the swing properly because my back was bad or being cognizant of like, oh, I can't be doing too much of this because I might tweak something and go home and, and rest. And, and that was like, you know, at this point, 15, 16 years pro, like I'm getting, I'm, I'm, I'm losing too much um, for the game. So that was a big part of my decision as well, and decided to you know wrap it up. If you were telling someone who had a 13 year old, let's say, one thing to teach them when it comes to maybe basketball, but just sports in general, what would that thing be? Tough one. Basketball related, sport related, is just the journey of winning and losing. I think it's underappreciated. I think we try to coddle our kids. You know, there's, there's, it's well publicized. They do it in Australia. There's a lot of leagues and junior leagues that don't keep score. 
um, under 12 and 14 level. They don't score. No one wins or loses. Like, that's the truth. The kids know, they know who wins or loses at the end of the night, generally, anyway. And we're coddling kids into that and not realizing the, um, the positives of both, the positives of winning, um, winning gracefully, you know, being a good sport. Like, you win by 40, you're not laughing in your opponent's face in the game, knowing that, okay, last week we lost, but this week we won because we put in a bit more work. All those kind of nuances that you get through and then losing the same, like learning how to lose, learning how to look at the opponent in the eye and saying, okay, you mark this week, but now I've got another week to do prepare and try to beat you the next week. And then it's the important journey. It's not so much about the win or loss, what's in between. And I think it's the way we're bubble wrapping society. Yeah, it's such a paradox because we think that we're doing someone a favor by protecting them, but in reality, you're setting them up for long-term failure because they don't have that feedback. Right. So like that's one thing that I think is so valuable about sports is, is not only the wins and losses with that are the game, but the wins and losses that happen within the game. So like getting your ass handed to you on some play and then realizing like, Oh, I have to recover so quickly because the next play is already starting. Um, and, and I think that has trained my brain in, in an interesting way where it, it's always kind of recovering. There's a deep, uh, f- disappointment of like that went badly and now I feel like shit but then having to force yourself to get back up for the next place it's, it's just like invaluable as far as just getting through life I think well no doubt you just continue to either get embarrassed or continue to lose or continue to not do well or it's a business investment and if you're investing the same kind of way and you're losing money it's the same thing or you need to figure out so do some extra research, research, do some extra reading, talk to people to know why, why this is happening. If you just keep doing the same thing, you're eventually going to be broke. So it, it correlates to, you know, thousands of different industries, and that's the beauty of doing sport. Why I try to influence, I tell, you know, I recommend all kids play in the sport, even if you know you're not going to be professional, because it teaches you these things at an early age that can transition into, into so many different things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's one thing that gets lost here in the U.S. I can't speak to what it's like in Australia, but there is this sense that like the only reason you're playing on the travel team or whatever else is to get a college scholarship or to play professionally, which is so short-sighted because the sport has inherent value whether you're successful at it or not, and that's peculiar to me. Yeah, 100%. Look, just going back to you know the adversity, we spoke about it on my podcast, funnily enough, last week. There's 1,900 kids that have put in transfer requests out of 4,500 D1 basketball athletes. So that goes into what I'm saying. Look at the NBA teams as well, like superstars joining other superstars. A lot of there's much more movement now because you know players they, they rightfully can move, but you know players are like, oh, I don't like this. I'm going to go somewhere else. And that's that's what I go back to my point about putting that resiliency and having adversity at a young age and parents be coddling. I mean, 1,900 out of 4,500 is insane. For those who are not familiar, what Andrew is talking about is in the NCAA, they've uh, made it allowable to sort of enter this transfer portal so that you can leave one college, go to the other without any, without the penalties that maybe would have existed in the quote olden days, Um, which on one hand is actually somewhat good because it it gives agency to the players. But on the other hand, it usually isn't the best mark of uh, resilience, as you mentioned. Okay, before we wrap up, I wonder this. Let's say, hypothetically, that there's a person listening or watching who wants to make some sort of change in their lives. What's the one small thing you would have them do to their habits or routines to help in making that change? 
getting up for something every morning. So whether it's you know, you go for a walk, whether it's you had your coffee, you had you read something and then you get out of the door and do whatever it is, getting up for something is very, very important now. Uh, most people work nine to five, right? So I would highly encourage people to if you're working nine to five and you leave the house at eight to get to work, get up at seven. Maybe people can walk around the block at just fifteen. Maybe you know, just get some me time in the morning. Um, me, I kind of wake up and see the kids for about five or ten minutes straight away. You know, talk to the wife, make sure that's okay, all that kind of stuff, and then go upstairs, get a coffee, and usually just read what's going on in the world a little bit, spend a few minutes, and then and then go on my day. Just quickly on the flip side of that, there's another side of that. I would put the phone down. Um, I started doing this probably about three or four months ago. I put the phone down about an hour before bed. Um, watching TV fine, reading the books fine, kind of unwind. But I put the phone down as far as reading what's going on in the world and all that kind of stuff. Uh, now before bed, take control of the phone. Don't let the phone control you. Right, like set up boundaries into it. So it's the things you do before you go to bed. It's the things you do right after you wake up in the morning. Andrew Bogut, I appreciate getting to meet you and to pick your brain. Thanks for doing this. No worries. Thanks, Hey, everybody. Scott from The Process here. I just had the chance to listen to Paul Shirley's interview with Andrew Bogut. And I thought it was really interesting how the two former basketball players uh, talked about using productivity and process to stay in shape and stay ready to play whenever they're professional players. Hope you got a lot out of it, too. And we'll see you again next time. Hey, friends. Paul here. I really appreciate you listening, and I hope that if you enjoyed what you heard, you'll leave us a five-star review, and that maybe you'll share what you heard with some friends. The executive producer of The Process Podcast is Rich Berner. Music came to us courtesy of Kevin McLeod at incompetech.filmmusic.io. I'll talk to you again soon.